Like many of you, we took the holiday season off here on the Footy Talks podcast, but as will be made abundantly clear here on our first edition of 2019, Toronto FC certainly didn't. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and on today's show, it's an all-TFC edition. We will talk about an unexpected managerial change from the club, some new signings, and where the club goes from here after a hectic few days in Toronto FC circles. It's also the 40th edition of our show and the first one of the year, so I figured... Who better to have on than the show's inaugural guest from DAZN? It's Oliver Platt. Ollie, thanks for joining the show. Uh, are you missing the kind of consistent TFC beat reporting a little bit with uh, kind of how the recent chaos has gone? Yeah, it does a little bit. Um, I would never miss having to walk around a freezing Downsview Park in January to get to TFC's training ground, but definitely um, an interesting time at the club now and obviously a, a very busy start to the year. Yeah, certainly. Let's... Uh... Well, I guess kind of let's let's start with how this news cycle all broke and and sort of what happened. Um, there was kind of a it was almost a bit of a throwaway in a in a post from the the Columbus Dispatch um, about about you know the the fact that um, the Columbus crew were pursuing Tim Bezbachenko or in fact had, had hired Tim Bezbachenko as their new president and would be bringing him in and. Um, I mean, it absolutely caught a lot of people in Toronto FC circles completely off guard, at least from my understanding. It certainly caught me off guard. And um, it was definitely one of those things. And we get a lot of bizarre rumors in Toronto FC circles, obviously. Bizarre and, um, you know, every offseason we were, were greeted with the fact that all three designated players are leaving, that sort of thing. So uh, we're kind of used to this sort of thing being, a, a you know, covering a, a bigger club. But... You know, th- this was a fairly reputable source, and uh, I didn't think too much of it. I thought, you know, maybe he'd heard something, and obviously Columbus, uh, with their new ownership group and, and having some money behind them, would, would go after someone like Tim Bezbachenko. But all, all of a sudden, you know, um, Sam Stachkel of MLS Soccer comes out with the fact that, yeah, this is actually happening, and um, for sure, it, it definitely caught a lot of people off guard. I thought, I think... For most people, they thought, and this was me included, they thought this offseason was going to be about kind of fine-tuning this group a little bit, um, taking some time to figure out what went wrong in 2018 and uh, making marginal changes that would help uh, kind of fix that. But this is obviously a, a massive change for the club and uh, allowing Tim Bezbachenko to, to move on and uh, obviously replacing him with Ali Curtis is definitely something that uh, we weren't expecting to, to have happen this offseason. No, the more I thought about it, the more it kind of, it, it did make some sense to me. And I think obviously the Columbus job is, is a pretty appealing one right now. Um, but it definitely did come out of the blue. Um, I, I think what it comes down to in the end is, you know, Tim Bezpachenko gets to take on a president's role with the crew. Um, you know, the new ownership there is also the ownership behind the Cleveland Browns. So there should be some money to spend. There's potentially a new stadium coming, a new training facility and, you know, I guess for someone from Ohio whose parents are crew season t- ticket holders, um, that was all just too good to turn down. But, it, you know, it always seemed like, um, you know, that three of, of Greg Vanny, Tim Bespachenko and Bill Manning were so tightly knit that this was definitely a surprise. But And, and especially after the season that TFC have just had, you know, I, I imagine there is probably a little bit of regret, you know, from Bespachenko's side that he has to go out on this note and doesn't, 
you know, get to see the club go through another CONCACAF Champions League campaign and, and obviously try and uh, rebound in MLS. But um, it is a great opportunity in Columbus. Like, you know, it kind of shocked me at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I kind of, you know, it, it did all make sense and, and add up. And that included, obviously, his replacement, who I think is a, you know, a pretty natural fit. Yeah, let's talk about that replacement. Ali Curtis uh, revealed yesterday at a, pr- a press conference um, that he would be the fifth general manager of Toronto FC. He's kind of got a lot of similarities to Tim Bezbachenko in the sense that, you know, he's he's someone that's very knowledgeable. The league obviously worked in the league office, and his, his last job at the league office was the same one um, Tiz- Tim Bezbachenko had before he came to Toronto FC, obviously working with with players and, and all those mechanisms that MLS has. So that's a that's an obvious first, uh, you know, kind of uh, step up on some of the other um, managers in the league that he'll have is, is you know, the, I think Eric Giacometti, um, who, uh, who obviously works for Toronto FC, was, was saying yesterday he wrote the book on a lot of this stuff, like literally wrote the book on a lot of the player mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So uh, that definitely is, is something that's helpful. Uh, obviously, a lot of success in his two seasons uh, with, with the New York Red Bulls is there. Uh, director of soccer operations, uh, top of the East both seasons, and, and the Supporters Shield as well. Um, he did only last those two years, though. Uh, from what everything I've heard, um, there was some sort of disagreement with Jesse Marsh, and the organization chose to keep uh, Marsh on. Which, uh, I mean, w- with what we've seen in terms of his career progression, that probably made sense. But um, w- what do you make of of this hire for Toronto FC? I think you've you've already mentioned that you think it's it could be a positive one, considering kind of. You know what his strengths uh, have been outlined as um, in in terms of what he did with New York. Yeah, I, I think he was he was pretty guarded in the press conference yesterday and didn't really get into many specifics, which is probably understandable given how quickly this has happened. And you know he doesn't want to make any big pronouncements without actually doing his homework. Um, but I think you know going on what I've read about him and what other people say about him, he seems to be very highly regarded. Um, as you say, he knows the league, he knows the rules, he's you know, going to know his way around the, the CBA and the cap, just like Bezpachenko did, having you know, played his part in, in creating it. Um, I, I think that you know, it's interesting how it could change the, the dynamic between you know, the three um, top guys in the TFC hierarchy, and that it, it seems to me, and, and again, this is an early impression, but it seems to me like, like Ali Curtis is someone who is very good at going out and you know negotiating contracts getting deals done you know getting trades done the the kind of very functional things that a GM has to be able to do mm-hmm. what I'm interested to see is if he's really someone who you know has a style of play he prefers and you know gets into some of the the details of the more you know actual soccer stuff um, like Tim Bezpachenko did or whether He's kind of willing to follow Greg Vanny's lead on that and, and be the guy who who executes the vision rather than comes up with a vision. Um, you know, if if it's the former, then it's it's interesting for Greg Vanny because it theoretically means he takes on a much larger role in terms of shaping the whole club. And and obviously, we know that Vanny is very keen to to you know work on the academy and, and create a pathway through there. And that's something that that Curtis did very well um, with the Red Bulls. So. It's interesting, but I, I think he seems like a, you know, as they said, they only went after one candidate, and to be honest, I can see why, because I think he has exactly the track record that that TFC are looking for, and especially when it comes to planning for life after the DPs, whether that's 2019 or 2020 or whenever. 
yeah, you mentioned this transition and, uh, you know, a lot of maybe, I don't know if I'd call them conspiracy theorists, but there's a lot of, uh, there's obviously going to be a lot of concern with, when something like this happens um, from the fan base just because, you know, this was unexpected turnover and um, there's a lot of uncertainty around the club right now, certainly as you would expect after the season they had and now uh, moving on from someone who's had tangible results with the club. Um but you know that which which kind of makes this year interesting in the sense that uh, a lot of people are concerned that this is kind of uh, you know something from MLSE to um, have the club go much cheaper and you know with the a lot of the a lot of people have brought up the Kawhi Leonard contract that's coming up obviously Mitch Marner and all those contracts we don't have to get into with the Leafs um, are, are are you know expiring and, and MLSE is going to be paying a lot of money for players and there's some belief that. Uh, perhaps they don't want to be spending as much on Toronto FC's payroll, but you know I don't necessarily think that's that's the worst thing because you know we've seen clubs with if if I guess if MLSC is still willing to put up uh, you know a reasonable amount of money, I don't think Toronto FC uh, necessarily has to you know be spending as much as they do to be as competitive as they are or has, as competitive as they have been in the league because you know we've seen clubs like Atlanta, we've seen obviously clubs like New York Red Bulls, which is uh, kind of the direct comparison here, be able to succeed with uh, spending a lot less money. So uh, I think that's going to be interesting to see how. Toronto FC transitions from having obviously one of the biggest payrolls in the league to, um, you know, maybe spreading the wealth a little bit throughout the roster and, um, you know, kind of getting deeper in in different ways and maybe not being as top-heavy as they have been in recent seasons. Yeah, I I think certainly in terms of salaries, you know, we're not going to see another $7 million contract. I'm pretty sure um, that won't be the case uh, whenever it is that Jovinko leaves. I think you know they'll start to move into that kind of 1.5 to 3 million range um, as far as salaries are concerned for their top players. Um, you know the interesting thing is, are they willing to put down big transfer fees still? Because that's kind of the way things have gone a little bit uh, over the past few years. Where, as you mentioned, teams like Atlanta are only spending, you know, one and a half or two million on on their best players on salaries, but mm-hmm. they're willing to pay big fees to get them in in the first place and to get young players. Um, and the same thing that's with Kaku. Point at the Red Bulls so it'll be interesting to see what the willingness is to do that um, you know obviously Lucas Janssen comparatively was a bit of a cheaper one if he had come in at 3 million that's much less than you know an Almiron or a, a Barco or someone like that um, yeah it'll be interesting to see I, I don't think that um, you know what's happening with the Leafs and the Raptors will p- play a particularly big role in, in influencing you know TFC's budget but I certainly think the salaries would definitely come down, but I think it's the transfer fees that are going to be interesting to to see what kind of level they're willing to spend at. And, you know, the best way to create money there is to have a pipeline of players that you're selling onto Europe and you're able to reinvest that money. Yeah, certainly. And um, one of the other things that struck me as very interesting about this press conference and I think stood out to a lot of people, and you kind of alluded to this, was Greg Vanny's role in the hiring and the fact that you know, Greg Vanny's boss sat down with Greg Vanny to, uh, to you know, kind of see if he was the right fit, and that's not something that's obviously typical of of certainly any hiring in in North American sports and really soccer as a whole is is you know the the manager kind of playing such a big role in the hiring of a superior, and um, I, I, you know, I think it's it's obviously interesting. I think it's a 
probably a positive that Toronto FC have um, had such an alignment from president all the way down to coach in recent years, and they really do work as a team. Um, they're very interested to see how Ali Curtis fits into this, but just an interesting kind of note from uh, from the entire process was how much Greg Vanny was, was fully involved and how much pull he now has uh, with the club that obviously, you know, Bill Manning's been been pretty open, or, or at least was at the time, about the fact that he very heavily considered moving on from Greg Vanny when he initially kind of arrived at the club. So, uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years, and obviously he's two MLS Cup final appearances, among other things, uh, to to back it up. Um, but yeah, he's now you know very ingrained in, in the club itself. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the most interesting parts of this, I think, and you know, obviously right now maybe Bill Manning will take a more active role just to kind of tide things over since Bezpachenko has left but at the end of the day he's got the Argos to, to take care of as well and so there's delegation involved on both sides there um, and and as I said before you know with Curtis I don't know I don't want to underestimate you know his ability to have a soccer plan and a vision just because he hasn't talked much about it yet but I, I don't know how much he is kind of uh you take his time at the Red Bulls, for example, and and there the the, the identity of the team in terms of the high pressing and and all of this kind of thing was really sent down from the Red Bull organization, right? It's exactly the same in Leipzig. It's exactly the same in Salzburg, and it was down to him to kind of take that vision and plan and implement it rather than come up with a vision himself. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be interested to see if kind of maybe. Um, the the role of the Red Bull organization at that club is Greg Vanny's here and he gets the you know kind of carte, carte blanche after the the DP era whenever it ends to to really set the footballing philosophy of of this club um, which is obviously a massive responsibility um, but you know I don't think it would come to, to as, as a surprise to anyone who's been around Greg Vanny to to know that he would you know really love to have that kind of oversight because he's not just a first team coach he is you know he reshaped the academy essentially um as academy director in his short time in that role um and he's you know massively involved and you know i'd almost say obsessed with with every level of the club um Mm -hmm. so he would be you know a, a natural choice to take on that kind of responsibility but it is a lot of responsibility for you know someone who always also has to manage the first team yeah, for sure, and um, you kind of mentioned the the kind of holistic um, approach to the club, and that's that's obviously a big um, a big talking point with Ali Curtis as well is this fact that you know he he was pretty vital and in my understanding again talking to people uh in and around the red bull in the past couple days was that you know obviously a lot of the talent was already there tyler adams was already in the academy system Uh, obviously matt miazga was already there kind of the top end guys that red bull academy have produced but ali curtis was very vital and um you know kind of streamlining the academy system and turning it into what it is today which is a consistent producer of players for the red bull first team and obviously uh you know a source of income for red bull as they um or or even you know as they can kind of move players within the overall red bull system which obviously toronto FC isn't quite part of something like that but it's a uh, you know it's it's such a vital source uh for the club right now and um 
Yeah, I don't think he's going to meet any opposition, certainly from Greg Vanny there in terms of a, a plan to kind of do that. I know it, this was also something that, that Bezbachenko was was big into as well, was the fact that eventually the club's really going to need to start producing academy players and um, into the first team, and it's not something that... You know, it's not something that can happen overnight, and um, they've they've kind of struggled in recent years, which which makes sense with all the players they brought in to to give first team minutes to academy players. But um, how important is that side of of Ali Curtis and um, you know this? We've kind of mentioned it, but this ability to to finally give some opportunities to academy players and to get some of these guys like Liam Frazier and Jay Chapman, perhaps um, some first team minutes and even the players beyond that as, as we kind of look towards the, the next generation of Toronto FC players. Yeah. Well, I, I always think with young players that you have to, you know, the only way to get young players minutes is to give the coach no other, other choice, but to play them. And mm-hmm. and I think obviously, you know, it's not, not that Greg Vanny has been at all unwilling to put young players in there because we've seen Liam Fraser and some others go in, but I think he has had lots of other options and he's also had lots of pressure on him to, to obviously be competitive uh, right now. And so that's made young players coming through, you know, kind of difficult to really commit himself to. And, and I think, like you said, you can't really give Curtis credit for producing Tyler Adams because obviously he was, you know, in his late teenage years when he got to the club but what you can give him credit for is insisting on a certain number of players progressing to the first team each year and and I think that was very noticeable Um, once he and Jesse Marsh took over at Red Bull was you know every year there was a number of academy players getting homegrown contracts and getting on the roster you know when you make a a decent chunk of your your roster young players you know you, you end up having to play them and having to give them minutes and they really committed to to that idea and you know it wasn't just Adams it was Sean Davis was another one and, and there was a few more so I, I think you really have to you, you can't just you know if, if you really want to create a pipeline of young players and make that a real point of pride for your club rather than just having you know one or two come through every couple of years you really have to commit to it and you really have to you know you have to have almost measurable targets and quotas of, of how many minutes you're going to give your young players and I think that's something that can only really happen once this, again, this DP era that we talk about is over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's going to be very difficult to do that properly um, until they're fully committed to it. So I think it's something probably for, you know, 2020 at the earliest. But he, he does certainly have a very good track record of, of implementing, you know, those kind of visions. And, and it was noticeable how frequently he talks about the Academy and about TFC2 as well, which, you know, has been not as successful uh, a reserve team as, as Red Bulls too um, over the past few years by a long shot. So um, I think, yeah, definitely his, his his track record in those areas is, again, another reason why he just seems like a, a very natural fit at this time. As we mentioned off the top, um, this is, you know, this all happened very quickly for Toronto FC. Um, it sounds like Boxing Day was the day that Tim Bezbachenko called uh, Bill Manning and said, uh, look, I'm going to be pursuing another opportunity. Obviously, they didn't stand in his way. As you know, Bez is an ambitious guy, and obviously, someone with plenty of success and an excellent resume to uh, kind of move up in in Major League Soccer. And this was a huge opportunity to do that. Obviously, close to close to where he grew up, so um, it, it makes a lot of sense. But uh, obviously, th- there'll be a lot of talk of kind of his legacy over the next couple of days in, in Toronto FC and uh, what he, kind of the footprint he left on the club. And like you said, uh, 
this I don't think this was the farewell he would have hoped for with with the way things played out last season um, and kind of the the struggles that they had. But um, there seems to be um, a, a lot of Toronto FC fans that aren't overly happy with this uh, him moving to a, a quote unquote rival. I'm not really sure. Maybe this uh, maybe this reignite the rivalry, which is what I said uh, when I said was a positive of it when it first uh, when the news kind of broke when I was kind of joking about that, but. Um, what is the legacy of Tiv Bezbachenko for you? Because I think Bill Manning kind of summed it up fairly well in the fact that, you know, uh, some of the highest praise you can give uh, a general manager is the fact that uh, he took this club and, and left it off in a far better place than, than when he took it over. Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, you know, I think obviously, you know, Tim Lowicki had the, the kind of vision of bringing in some big name players and turning the the culture of the organization around but I don't think you can really say anyone did more to implement it than than Simbas Pachenko you know he obviously preceded Bill Manning uh, he preceded Greg Vanny and hired Greg Vanny and promoted him to to the head coach role um you know he was responsible for all of the the DP signings and you know took a very active role in many of them he was the one who was out there in Italy persuading Sebastian Jovinko to come to Toronto um, you know made a he learned from what I guess would probably be described as an error in, in the, the bloody big deal and, and flipped it into Josie Altador which you know kind of finished the finished the picture in terms of the big name players at this club and, and then obviously you know the the probably the biggest move that took TFC over the edge last year was Victor Vasquez who had been mm-hmm. another long term target of his so you know, um, I think this whole incredibly successful era for, for TFC has his fingerprints all over it. Um, and to do it, I, I think, you know, it seems like it's been a long time, but to do it with the speed that he did um, is pretty remarkable as well, given that, as he always said, it was almost worse than uh, being an... It, well, it was worse than being an ex- expansion team because he had... Uh, burdensome assets that he couldn't get rid of <laughs> yeah. on the roster when he took over and he didn't have a ton of allocation money which obviously the new clubs do so um, yeah I, I think he's done a phenomenal job and, and is fully deserving I think it was ine- it was inevitable that so- at some point you know someone was going to offer him a president's role and obviously you know Bill Manning's probably not going anywhere for a while here and so you can understand him uh, wanting to take it on especially as I said before, in, in his home state and with a club that, you know, I think means a lot to his family and is probably about to get an injection of, of money. Yeah, and let's talk about um, what I guess is, I, I don't fully know the timeline on this, but I would assume is kind of his final move with Toronto FC, his final signing, um, and that's the acquisition of Laurent Simon through the allocation process. We haven't actually had the time to discuss this on the podcast yet just because uh you know it happened kind of over the holiday break but um this is probably Toronto FC's you would think their marquee signing of the offseason is is bringing in the veteran center back the 2015 uh MLS defender of the year um looking at his numbers he's probably I don't know if you he's regressed in some ways uh, you I think he's kind of plays a bit of a different game um in some ways but obviously this is kind of the 
you know, this was the big reinforcement that everyone was kind of calling for this offseason was was adding another center back. And um, for, for me, he ticks a lot of boxes. I mean, MLS veteran, you can give him that. Obviously, plenty of success within this league. Um, he's he's shown leadership qualities. Obviously, he was the captain of a of a new LAFC team last year and had plenty of success there before. Uh, obviously, moving back to to or moving to France for for a short amount of time, and um, I, I think the one thing that's maybe been understated a little bit is his Concacaf Champions League experience and the fact that he went on a run uh, very similar to the one Toronto FC did last season with the Montreal mm-hmm. Impact and was you know obviously very crucial in that. So that's going to be something that uh, makes him a major asset to this club. So. Um, you know, and and it's uh, something that I've mentioned a lot is the fact that they had kind of trouble transitioning players in for that Concacaf Champions League campaign last year. Vanderveel um, was pretty, you know, was pretty good, and obviously Auro did well, but Agriketche kind of struggled to get any minutes. So having a player that knows what they're doing and and it, it just makes it that little bit easier to transition a player and have them hit the ground r- running right away uh, for this competition. So uh, what do you kind of make of this signing and? Um, you know what what it could mean for Toronto FC is obviously it, it continues to put them in win now mode. Yeah, it's a good point on the Champions League. That's definitely true. Um, I I think for me, like just the biggest thing they needed this off season was someone who could organize that backline when when Drew Moore's not there. Um, you know, I think it was pretty obvious that what they really lacked when Moore wasn't there was just someone to talk and someone to communicate and and get the the group in kind of a cohesive shape and you know no one else really provided that I th- you know I think at this point you most people would say that Chris Mavinga is individually a better player than Drew Moore um, but he's not really an organizer he's not a big mm-hmm. talker and you know Zavaleta and Hagelin probably haven't quite ascended into you know a, a position of seniority to really have you know the ears of everyone else to really have everyone listen to them at this point um, and then you know, Vanderwill is kind of a quiet guy on the pitch, I think, and you know, Moore's uh, ability to organise and command the respect of everyone around him was something they missed, and and I think Simon is you know an obvious fit in that regard. Um, you know, wherever he's been, he's been extremely well respected and and liked by his teammates, and I don't think he'll have any issues. Um, you know, kind of bossing that unit around and and giving them a bit more of an authoritative voice. So. In, in that regard, it makes total sense. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, if, if Simon and Moore could play together in a back three or if mm-hmm. it's going to be one or the other in the middle of that back three. I think, obviously, if they go to a back four, which I'm expecting they will do more this season, then I think Simon's mobility maybe helps a little bit there um, compared to Moore. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see the, the fit on the field in terms of his play style because he's not exactly like Moore. Um, he's a bit more aggressive and kind of the the critique that has always been there with Simon is that he takes risks that he doesn't really need to and kind of jumps out of the back line a little bit too much. But um, So it'd be interesting to see just how those things gel. But uh, I think in terms of, you know, A, a proven MLS player, as you said, a proven CONCACAF Champions League player and a leader and, and another veteran in, in the locker room, it seems like a, a no-brainer and seems like they got him fairly cheap as well because I don't think they mentioned the use of uh, targeted allocation money. So seems like a good value uh, signing too. Yeah, Simon was dribbled past more than any other Toronto or any Toronto FC defender last year, which if you ask some fans, they don't even know that was possible. But 
Um, he's a, uh, you know, yeah, he's he's a risk reward defender, and obviously, uh, he also would have led the club in in tackles and interceptions. So, um, it, you know, if, it'll be interesting kind of to see who they pair him with, and and as you said, how they kind of fit him into the team. But uh, overall, I think this is a majorly positive signing. Um, the other, uh, you know, the other player that Toronto FC um, decided, it seems, not to bring back is, is Lucas Hansen. Um, it, you know, they had obviously an option to extend his loan, but uh, it was something like $3.7 million, um, which w- would have, you know, you even said uh, when that number got reported, or I guess it got tweeted out by Tigre, which is um, you know, just unbelievably transparent compared to um, what we uh, what we've come to know in Major League Soccer. Um, so we would assume that that's uh, an accurate figure, or at least close, because it's been consistently reported. But um, you know, you said at the time that it was always going to be incredibly difficult for Toronto FC to keep Hanson just because of what that what you know absolving that that. Um, that amount of money would do for their cap situation. And um, now it, now it really seems, I mean, now there's more rumors about Hanson kind of going to other Argentine clubs versus coming back to Toronto FC. So it uh, really appears as though that move is done. Um, you know, what do you make of kind of that situation and um, the fact that he won't be back after, you know, I, I, I thought he had a, actually a pretty positive time in major league soccer, but I can understand why, you know, if they can't get um, some sort of discount or, or, or other sort of deal on that, uh, why they wouldn't uh, why they wouldn't bring him back? He wasn't, you know, incredible or anything like that. Yeah, no, I, th- I think he was probably good, but not great. Um, I I, I, d- I never saw how they were going to be able to pay that fee unless Altidore left, and if Altidore had left, uh, you know, I don't know if if Hansen again. He was a good player. He looked perfectly um, decent and like he could add something to the attack but I don't know if he would have been an overwhelmingly positive replacement for, for Josie Altador with the importance that he's had and I just didn't see how they could do it unless it was as, as a DP or unless um, they were able to kind of negotiate that, that price down um, and obviously they've not been able to and probably a little bit ambitious to think that they could if that's what you've agreed Um mm-hmm you know literally four months earlier or whatever it was so um yeah I, I was never particularly optimistic about that one um obviously they got Auro done which was a, definitely a positive thing um but i yeah i just didn't see it happening at that number he was a good player um helped them at the back end of the season obviously atlanta was was probably uh the highlight of his time here but i, I couldn't really see it happening at, at that price kind of speaking of the cap i I know it's always a bit of a guesstimation. Um, do you have kind of any sense of what neighborhood Toronto FC would be in in terms of remaining cap space? I know it's, a, it's <laughs> an almost impossible calculation because we don't know what Simon is being paid. And we also, there was some kind of compensation for Tim Bezbachenko and some other uh, you know, salary stuff moving in, in terms of them even being able to acquire Laurent Simon. So do you have any kind of estimation as to, to what potentially they might have left? I have no idea. No, mm-hmm. um, like my my just even getting a vague estimate takes quite a lot of uh, time in a spreadsheet, which yeah. is a time I no longer have. Not being on the TFC beat, but fair enough. Um, I think you know when you add up Azorio, Vasquez, Vanderweel, I presume Auro is now a town player with the transfer fee that he uh, commanded. Mavinga, they can't have a whole lot of town left, so I don't know if there's anything more that's possible in that kind of region. But 
it sounds like they would like to add you know two or three more players so I think there will be more business but at what level it is whether it's just ordinary roster players or young players or if there's anything more significant to come I, I don't know yeah they have hinted at a few more signings to come um where do you still see as as some of the potential holes in this club? I know um, from the sounds of things, they might want uh, a, a winger or some kind of wide player to kind of balance out the acquisition of Nick DeLeon and, and Auro and some of the players they have on, on the right side. Um, and I know a midfielder has been kind of looked at as well. I'm not fully sure what kind of happened with the, the whole Juninho situation. Maybe that was a contract thing. Maybe, um, you know, they've had a couple failed medicals this offseason, so maybe that's something that happened as well. I don't want to speculate too much there, but, um, you know, where, where do you kind of see where there's still a bit of a need with this club? Um, well, I, I think the Juninho one made a degree of sense um, in that kind of shoring up that midfield and maybe taking a bit of the pressure off of Bradley. Uh, would definitely help um, if you could find some maybe a veteran at the right price. Other than that, I think you've got to look at the forward depth. Obviously, there could be players coming back there. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan Hamilton, maybe, but doesn't look like Tossie and Ricketts will be back. Hamilton is currently out of contract. Um, so that leaves you with, you know, Io Akinola, who's still a teenager. Um, so they could do with some depth there. Like you said, the wing situation, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it's realistic to think that they could actually get you know enough depth on the left-hand side to play with wingers on both sides um you know a couple of times we've seen them kind of play like an asymmetrical formation where they have a wide player on the right it was often Nico Hasler or Aro or someone like that mm-hmm. and then they maybe play someone like Azorio or Vasquez on the left who's going to drift inside and, and just have Justin Morrow um raid up and down that flank so I don't know whether they'll go for you know, out and out left wingers in the way that they've got a couple of right-sided players, but yeah, I, I think I'd look at forward depth, um, central midfield, just giving a bit more solidity in there. I think would be would be useful. Other than that, I, I think they're getting pretty close. You know, I I think this off season will maybe be more about veteran depth more than it mm-hmm. will be trying to bring in someone like a Keche who's gonna you know theoretically spice things up a bit. Yeah, well, one of the ways they could, uh, well, you know, they're going to have a chance to acquire at least a decent contributing player is on January 11th with the MLS Super Draft. And um, I know that kind of comes as, you know, something that a lot of Toronto FC fans have kind of put in the back of their mind, considering, you know, Toronto didn't have a first rounder last year. They, uh, the, their first round of the year before was Brandon Aubrey, I believe, who never got first team minutes. And obviously Tim Kubel uh, is no longer with the club as well. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of their high draft picks in recent years haven't, uh, you know, they've been more Toronto FC two type players, but they do have the sixth overall pick this year. And that is yeah. a spot where you can get a lot of value in recent years. I mean, the last time they picked there, they selected a goalkeeper out of Syracuse by the name of Alex Bono, who obviously mm-hmm. has gone on to be a big piece of this club. Um, you know, I don't really pretend to know a whole lot about, uh, you know, NCAA players or, or the type of value they could get this year. But, um, you know, that does look like a spot where they could potentially add someone that could contribute to the first team right away or at least in the next couple of years. And uh, that's something that they haven't been able to add through the draft in, in recent years. Uh, kind of a mechanism that's still, you know, there's a lot of debate as to whether it's still worth it. But it, it has proven in recent years with guys like Julian Gressel and, and that sort of thing there is still value kind of in those top 10 spots um, for clubs. 
Yeah, yeah, there is. And I kind of forgot that it was happening because, you know, as you said, they've been picking in like the bottom five of the first round and it's just, you know, it's just a crapshoot to get anything, at, um, mm-hmm. even at, even in the first round at that stage. But yeah, the sixth pick, I think the last five years, the sixth pick has produced, a, you know, like a legit player. Um, Chris Mueller last year, obviously Alex Bono you mentioned. I think Tesha Akindeli was number six as yeah, well. Yeah, was, yeah. So, Just short so around. Yeah, there's a few players that have come out of that slot and, um, you know, there's usually an opportunity to... The MLS draft is still such an inexact science that there's usually an opportunity to get a guy who, you know, a lot of people think could go top three and falls to falls out of the top five. And so there's potentially uh, a chance to get someone interesting there. Um, and that, w- that would be a help. That would be, an, you know, if you can get s- someone like... Even if it's just a, a young goalkeeper that you can nurture like they did with Bono or, you know, a, a young piece like Subasarendo who maybe doesn't stick for, you know, more than two or three years but can mm-hmm. just give you some depth in the short term, um, that, that would help. Yeah, it certainly would. And there are two Canadians expected to go reasonably high in the MLS draft this year again. Um, mock draft expectations or whatever, they seem to change very very quickly in MLS, so who knows uh, fully what will happen with these two guys, or or even if they're in like Toronto FC territory, or if they want to go with other options, but Callum Montgomery, who's a centre-back uh, from BC, and Dane St. Clair, who's a player I believe has who has been in the Toronto FC system before as a goalkeeper, um, and definitely the Canadian men's national team system, um, are, are a couple of names to keep an eye on, just in terms of Canadian players who could potentially be picked in this draft. Uh, Alex Comsey is also uh, kind of in that conversation, so there's, there could be a couple Canadians finding MLS homes over the next couple of years, so or out over the next couple of weeks. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, but the final thing in terms of uh, Toronto FC's kind of development, sort of the system, and um, as the club, you know, as we've said, transitions towards a manager who really likes to, you know, he he's there was a lot of talk about the 300 page plan that he had at the New York Red Bulls <laughs> and and kind of that binder full of of stuff, and this is. Um, another thing that the club might be looking to implement is is uh, some kind of affiliation with the Ottawa Fury now that they've had their sanctioning uh, renewed for the USL this season and um, obviously Montreal is a club that has had players with Ottawa for the past couple of years but it looks like they could be doing something with Toronto FC as well and uh, something that probably makes a lot of sense considering Toronto FC too will be moving into the USL USL League One, USL, yeah, I think League that's one, what yeah. I think that's what they're calling it now with the the whole rebranding. Um, so so they move uh, technically down a division into a kind of a more developmental uh, side of things. So this would give an opportunity for some of those, uh, I guess, higher tier players who are players who aren't quite at the MLS level but uh, could still use minutes um, to to kind of you know get an opportunity to play at the at a professional level. Yeah, it would definitely be a useful thing to have. Um, you know, TFC2 have signed a 14-year-old this offseason, and so that probably gives you an idea of the the fact that they're going to be dropping down to a league that's more uh, development-focused and, and not as strong, obviously, as, as the USL is. And the USL is a very good league, I think. Um, but there are guys like, you know, Aiden, you look at someone like Aiden Daniels, who at times was very, very good in, in the USL last season and got a little... Uh, glimpse of the first team it doesn't really make any sense for him to be dropping down to that level Mm -hmm. um so if there's you know a loan option they can set up with with one club or several clubs that would definitely be something 
that makes sense for you know for the players at the top end of of that TFC uh, kind of or the players just in between TFC two and and maybe getting some first team minutes. Yeah, I wonder if they set up something with the Canadian Premier League over the next couple of years as yeah, well. I think not? that's yeah. probably an opportunity to be had there. Obviously, I don't know what the situation is with Toronto FC in the Canadian Premier League right now because you know there there was some sort of at least not falling out there, but they. You know, Toronto FC did want to have a club in in the league, and the league said no. So we'll see what happens going forward there. But yeah, definitely, uh, I think some opportunities here where uh, they can loan players to professional clubs, as you said, in between um, in between that USL uh, Division Three level and the uh, and the MLS club. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how they kind of proceed with that. But um, we are going to wrap up this show now. Um, uh, pleasure as always, Ollie. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, We have some big plans ahead for the podcast in 2019, so stay tuned to find out what those are as we continue to evolve as a network. And as always, thanks for the support, and have a good weekend.